One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One Aslan ring to rule them all. Lion. One the ring to lion. find them. The great lion. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass. Books from Earth, a podcast. Relive your favorite books of fantasy, sci-fi, and apocalyptic stories. Yes, there are lots of spoilers. The spoiling is constant. Yes, there can be adult content. We are adults making content. Spoilers, adult content, books from Earth. Time to relive a favorite book. Welcome to the Books from Earth podcast featuring Dan Simmons' amazing space opera sci-fi novel, Hyperion. This is literature Chaucer himself would envy. A pilgrimage, tombs, undefeatable monster, time debt. Ousters, Farcasters, a rich tapestry of tales. Today, we relive one of the best ever, Hyperion, with Books from Earth. I'm Josh, and I'm joined by my fellow Books from Earth podcasters, Lou. Hey, guys. Maureen. Hi, universe. And Jack. It is the way. A special <laughs> notice today <laughs> that we're going to draw on our, our understanding of all the Hyperion novels, all four of them. So you've been warned that there might be some spoilers of not just Dan Simmons' initial book, Hyperion, but any and all of the Hyperion books. But we will focus primarily on Hyperion. So let's go back and revisit what this book is about. Jack, what is this book about? The story is set deep into the future. Humankind has left planet Earth behind. And due to some sort of accident or intentional act, they cannot return to Earth. It has been destroyed by a black hole, apparently, may have been. If you read further in the books, you find out that it may or may not have been. But humankind, detached from its home planet, Earth, has spread across the galaxy. Hundreds of planets, each planet has characteristics that are unique to itself varying degrees of gravity some planets could have 1.5 percent gravity others might have point or one point you know 150 percent of the gravity of earth others might have 70 percent different sizes different temperatures different climates these planets have been populated in many respects uh, by separate races and in, you know, indigenous peoples within the United States. There is a Jewish world, a Muslim world. There's a subtropical world. There are heavily industrialized worlds. There are uh, open, you know, conser- you know, conservation worlds. There are there's a huge variety. These worlds are all governed by the same uh, government. With it that has a Senate and a CEO, the worlds are connected by the Farcaster Network, which is teleportation on a very big scale and a very small scale. For instance, you could have it's very Stargate, um, but with lots of Stargates, thousands and thousands of Stargates. They could be big enough to take a today's cruise ship through, or you could have a house with multiple far casters within your house so that you're 
in the living room in a sub-Saharan world. Your dining room is in an Arctic world. Your bathroom is in a world completely covered by water. Your bedroom is in a on a land, you know, underneath a bubble with no oxygen, no atmosphere, and you're looking directly at the stars. So the and forecasters are big and important because they connect all these very disparate worlds. There are characters that live on one world and commute to work on another world, and it's a five minute walk, uh, you know, or a eight minute train ride. Uh, there is transgalactic communication through the fat line which works on a on a similar basis instant instant communication and bearing in mind this is written in 1989 it's kind of cool because it is definitely uh, very internet like and in 1989 when the book was written cool idea uh today i think that it would be something we're all really really accustomed to and wouldn't be terribly surprised by in addition to the government that controls all of these worlds, and the government is called the hegemony of man, great name, there are some worlds that are not admitted to the hegemony, and there are there's a group of people not admitted to the hegemony who didn't want to be a part of the hegemony. They don't have the forecaster. They don't have the fat line. They live in space. They're called the ousters. And this story, they play the role of the barbarian hordes outside the gates of civilization to be feared, to to battle with, um, unknown, you know, very much like the Germanic tribes north of the Romans, scary, exotic and unknown, dangerous. And there is another civilization living amongst the humans, and these are the sentient artificial intelligences that have evolved from being servants of man to living side by side with man. They have a seat at the table uh, with the Senate as advisors, and they have agendas all their own. And there are as many humans, there are probably that many different artificial intelligences they do not all agree. They could be broken up into certain factions, which are not terribly important for this book, uh, but play a small role in, in Braun Lamia's story, uh, but have a bigger influence on the world at large. And those factions are, um, in general, broken down into three parts. There's the part that wants to destroy humankind. There's the part that wants to ignore humankind. There's the part that wants to use humankind for their own uh, objectives and desires. Amidst all this world, it's a very religious world in the sense that there are multiple religions, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim. There's a church called the Church of Atonement or the Shrike cult, uh, which worships the Shrike. And that brings us to the world of Hyperion. And on Hyperion, uh, when Hyperion was discovered, there was some ancient ruins. There's a sphinx, a pyramid, an obelisk, a temple, uh, some sort of castle, and it was there before humans arrived. And there are the time tombs, 
and the the time or the time around these ancient ancient sites, ancient ruins goes goes sometimes backwards, sometimes forwards. And I think it's kind of like being seasick uh, to enter into that area or even be near it out of this area, which I picture in the middle of like a desert with like desert scrub, like maybe, you know, uh, north of Phoenix, something like that. There are rumors and of a shrike, a creature that emerges and wreaks havoc. Little is known about this ultimate boogeyman. And for some reason, and I'm about to turn it over to our first character, for some reason, the pilgrims have been selected. And how they were selected is not clear in this book, but it is a combination of the AIs, some intelligences from the future, the Senate, and the Church of Atonement, or the Shrike cult, has selected these particular pilgrims to go to Hyperion, where technology does not work as well, or at all, and, and take a pilgrimage, a very fascinating pilgrimage, to the, the time tombs and to the Shrike. It is rumored that this will be the last pilgrimage, meaning there have been many pilgrimages before, if you use technology to reach the time tombs, you, your technology, meaning like your ship or your, may return, but no one will be on it. So no technology can be used, very little technology. The book is the story of these characters telling their stories on their way to essentially they're off to see the wizard. And this is them telling those, their own personal stories on the yellow brick road. Each story illuminates this colorful, rich, unbelievable world that Dan Simmons has built. That first story is Father Lennar Hoyt. So Father Lennar Hoyt, he, there seems to be something a little bit off about him as he is in the ship and speaking with the rest of the pilgrims. And so he is the first one to go and tell his story of why he is making this journey and why he has been selected to go to the Temple of the Shrike. It's as he begins to tell, he he explains it's not really his story or his reason that he's even there. And he pulls out a journal and it is the journal of a man named Father Dure. Father Dure was a priest who was excommunicated from the Catholic Church. You learn through his journals that he was excommunicated to Hyperion because he was feeling that the church was in decline. And so he pulled a fast one and said that they found Christianity on another planet uh, to spread the idea that Christianity was universal and that people should then be more drawn to the church because there was more uh, basis for it. Well, Father Dure gets to Hyperion and he gets to Hyperion in a time when things have fallen apart. The Shrike has been active. People are living in fear um, he lands on the planet. It's sick. It's poor. It is a far cry from 
how the planet was originally settled, which you don't find out until later in the book. But he goes to the main city, um, Keats, and finds murder and sickness and death and illness and, and poverty. And he was so excited to take this journey and to do something new. His whole purpose of going to Hyperion and choosing Hyperion was to do uh, research on a mysterious group of people there that nobody had seen, they had just heard of and heard tell of. So he spends some time wandering around the cities of Hyperion in the settled areas and is very disenchanted by it. He gets a guide and begins to travel to the south to find this group of people called the Bakura. And it is a dangerous journey. He almost dies. He gets very ill. Um, he picks up his guide and they begin to traverse the wilds of Hyperion. And it is a completely alien planet. We get our first encounter of the flora and fauna and it is based in electricity. Um, they have the Tesla trees and there's a very heroin scene where they don't know if they're going to survive the night. Where the trees are basically creating their own lightning storm. Him and his guide make it through the night. They're joyful and rejoicing. When Father Dure wakes up the next day, he finds that his guide has been murdered. Now he is alone he is continuing to travel. The Bakura find him and they tell him that he is of the cruciform and point at his chest to the crucifix that he wears on his chest. And his universal translator is saying that he and the Bakura, they have this, the cross in common. So he begins to get a little bit of his, his faith back. The Bakura let him in and it's very mysterious. They all look like children and he can't quite figure out what's going on with them. They have very simple language. They have no higher level thinking skills. Their basic day-to-day -day is just survival. And there are 70 of them. There have never been any more than 70 of them. They all appear to be the same age. And it was, to back up a little bit, this is a group that had settled on Hyperion and been lost. And it's the same number of people that had been, that had been settled and disappeared. So Father Dure begins to try to unravel this mystery. They catch him one day, the Bakura catch him bathing without his cross on, and they start to turn a little hostile because they're they're asking, you know, we thought you were of the cruciform. And in the meantime, there's also a mysterious cave down a ledge. <laughs> the Bakura go there. So Father Dure gets, the, gets to this cave and gets the Bakura and explains, yes, I'm of the cruciform. He gets into this cave and discovers it looks like a natural chapel. And all over the walls are these crosses, these glowing crosses, and they're everywhere. 
and all, he just has he has a spiritual moment where his God comes crashing in and he realizes that the setup that he made that got him excommunicated, he is actually in this place now where this has actually happened to him and it's real. And so his faith is completely restored and he turns a little bit of a fanatic. But when he wakes up the next day, he is of what the Bakura define as of the cross. And he what all of those glowing crosses that were on the wall, he now has one embedded in his chest. Do and you want to say how that happened? Jack, I want you to say how that okay. happened because I so they, it's too much. When he gets caught bathing without and they see that he's not of the cruciform, their plan is to kill him as they killed his guide. He argues with them and and he's already had this reignition, you know, his faith is reignited. He eventually says that he wants to be of the cruciform and it's hard for them to understand someone not of the cruciform, but they eventually take him down the ledge, past the chapel, down into some tunnels that have been bored into this planet that has no plate tectonic activity. The tunnels have been there for millennia. It's a mystery as to how they got there. They take him into this tunnel. You see the crosses in the walls glowing as you describe. And then out of the darkness, the first thing he sees is two red eyes and the Shrike comes out of the darkness. The Bikura are all very worshipful towards the Shrike. The Shrike extends a clawed finger, removes, it happens so fast, Dior doesn't really see it, but essentially implants the cruciform into um, Duray. And then they head back up to the camp where the Bikura live. Then he wants to leave and go back and tell the world about this thing that he's he's witnessed and he's got his journals, but he's not able to leave. If he gets too far away from the Bacora camp, he's overcome by incredible pain coming from the cruciform and the pain so bad it drives him back. Do you want to continue, Maureen? Yeah, that was great. Thank you. It's so dense. This one character is so dense. Thank you so much. It's like, it's hard to remember everything. Um, and it's it, it's hard to pack it all in. So Father Dure begins trying trying to leave. And in the meantime, he begins helping the Bakura. And he begins worshiping at this chapel. But his, his faith is restored. And he is, he is trying everything that he can to live with this cross on his chest. There are times when he tries to dig it out. There are times when he tries to cut it out. It, it will not leave his chest and he cannot get more than a certain distance from the chapel itself before it begins to collapse in pain. And he finds that he actually cannot do it because he discovers that the symbiotic relationship that he has with this creature it actually cannot withstand pain. He's hanging out with one of the Bakura one day and a rock falls on the Bakura. And there was a, a scene earlier where they differentiated between the true death and just death as the Bakura know it. They say that if you are not of the cruciform, you will suffer the true death. And if you are of the cruciform, it will not be true death. And that is all that Father Dure can get out of them. So his companion dies and they take him to the altar and 
what ends up happening is these worms come and devour the body. They regurgitate all of the cellular material and rebuild the body from the cells up. And each time it's happened, it comes back a little bit less than the original creation. So less, less vital, not as smart, right? Right. Like e- so each time they're they're sim- more and more simple. You yes, you move more toward a doll. So like one of the things that is that Father Dore sees is that none of the Bakura have genitalia, and their brains get a little bit planer. So the whole body shape and form become plainer each time they are resurrected. And it becomes clear that the Bakura, there is it 60 and 10, have been resurrected over and over and over again. So Father Dure starts to get, starts to realize that this is what will become of him. He will become not only of the cruciform, but of the Bakura. And it becomes very vital to him that he gets out of there. But unfortunately he's he's unable to leave and he is his journals end that that he's going to try to leave you want to fill in jack yeah i'd say so his faith is totally restored he sees like a resurrection of sorts and then it's totally crushed because he views it as almost more of a parasite than a spiritual vehicle yes and he tries to leave so, so yes, Father, Father Dure, it, that is a really important thing. It, in his quest to have this spiritual experience and, and bring his God to many, what he ends up finding is another false God. And it is crushing to him that, once again, his God has abandoned him. And now he is in a place of complete and total desperation. And we switched back to Father Hoyt, and Father Hoyt is very clearly, like, shaking and ill and sick. And so the consul, who is another pilgrim on this ship, you know, approaches him later on to give him basically super morphine and asks him, you know, what happened? Because the consuls figured out that Father Hoyt and, and a team went in to rescue Father Dure, and they found him crucified to one of the Tesla trees in an eternal burning. The Bakura pointed him, they called him the eternal fire because the, the creature that was embedded in his chest couldn't handle pain. His last resort was to try and leave it in constant pain in hopes that it would fall off of him but because it did not father dure was living a life of constant turmoil crucified to this tesla tree and father hoyt went in and rescued him and in doing so got the cruciform on his chest and they managed to pull him out, but the only way that he is able to survive is with incredible amounts of painkiller because it's so painful for the creature on his chest to be that far away from the chapel. Jack, you want to fill in anything else that I forgot? 
No, you did good. So he carries two cross cruciforms, one on his chest and one on his back. So he's in total pain mm-hmm. at all times. I believe it was probably the Catholic Church just nuked that area so it would never happen again. And he is one of the pilgrims. And he's got this story. Uh, science has shown that the, the cruciform, the symbiote, has essentially nerve endings that go into every part of his body. It's, it can't be removed through, through science or surgery. And he's on this journey. Why he's on this journey? Do you group want to talk about that real quick? Why do you guys think he's on the journey? Aside from what I said earlier, the AI, the Shrike Church, and the Senate, he what's what is he trying to satisfy, or what's his goal? Would you all say? I didn't even think about it. Isn't he trying to bring bring his colleague back to life? Yeah, I'd Father say that, that could be that could be part of it. Isn't isn't the um isn't he isn't his hope that this cruciform that he's carrying that's attached to him that was the cruciform that was attached to Father Dure. Isn't his hope that somehow he can sort of revive Dure, that some of the cruciform like contains Father Dure's soul or something and he can revive it? Yeah, I mean, it's not really 100% clear. I think I buy that. Um, I think he might want to die. I also think he might want to try to kill the Shrike, right, and rid the world of this Antichrist. I mean, there's a lot lot going on uh he has lots of reasons to to be on this journey do we know how he got the second cruciform it's not made clear yeah and future books don't answer that question father jure and lenar hoyt had a love for the church and uh you know they they the catholicism was a a dying religion was shrinking Mm -hmm. i believe that the the resolution for for Dure was was that or and or Hoyt was that it it was okay if the the church shrank and was smaller. What was most important is that who was ever whoever was in it was a true believer. Uh, sort of quality over quantity. It's just it's just a, a hell of a story and a really great character development of Father Dure. It was dense. It was gripping. And it was just packed. <laughs> and it, and it was un- only, what, unexpected. 150 days? Yes. Very, very good. Very good. One of my favorite characters in the book. And poor Tuck. The guy <laughs> oh, who got oh, yeah, murdered. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Yeah, he yeah, didn't. He did, things were bad for him. He was uh, not a cruciform. He was not a cruciform. <laughs> I will say this. In books there three is. and four, almost everybody... And the hegemony of man is of the cruciform. What? And Lenar Hoyt is the Pope. Oh, man! Spoiler And the the entire population of the hegemony of man is Catholic. Oh, ew. I mean, not ew. That was not an appropriate response. They get to a much, (laughs) they much, they get to a very, very good version of Catholicism by the end of the fourth book. Really? But it is, yeah, but it is uh, um, very much Spanish Inquisition type Catholicism. Does the Shrike deliver the cruciforms to people? No. No, they reverse engineer the cruciform. Uh, oh, with, no way. Yeah, with help from the AIs. And then do the they AIs. like plant it on people themselves? 
Yes. So um, you fucked up. So you can accept the cruciform. There's a few few planets that have big populations that have not accepted the cruciform, and the some of the stories within the the two books are why people have accepted the cruciform, or why they haven't. Has Maui Covenant accepted the cruciform? Does they just rebels? Um, many, many people. Maui Covenant is a different land by the time the third and fourth books come. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Because it has a lot of natural resources. Yes. So instead of it being this idyllic subtropical, you know, floating islands. Is it like uh, Pennsylvania mining town? Yeah, it's complete strip mined. Oh, no. Oh. See, this is why yeah. you got to let us guess, Jack, because when we guess good, it's, like, real neat. But when we guess bad, it, like, is even better. We'll <laughs> guess on the others. It's, it's, we'll guess on the others. terrible. Yeah. Man, what else do we got to guess for this, Jack, of the cruciform? <clears throat> that every time Lenar Hoyt dies, he comes back as Duray. And every time Duray dies, he comes back as Lenar Hoyt. And in and, that way, are they able to maintain and retain their intelligence and uh, yes, in, yes, like, the, complex the, form? The, yes, the AI was able to figure that out. Oh, that's crazy. So they, they act so, in harmony, not not opposing to each other. They're 100% opposing to each other. And DeRay, as soon as he is, uh, as soon as he is reborn, they slit his throat every time. Uh, what? Wow. Uh, so Duray is the problem. Ooh, according Duray's, to the Duray's, according to the the Passum, which is the Spanish Inquisition version of the Catholic faith. Wow. Does he eventually win? Yes. Yes. Oh, How does he do it? Like it? Rebel Wait, force. Hold on. Hold on. Wait, it's a rebel. I want to read this book now. It's, a, it's okay. a rebel force that figures out that if Duray becomes the Pope or whatever, that things will really get back to how they're supposed to be. No, 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 no. Duray, this is my theory. Duray finds a way to reach a couple followers who then decide not to slit his throat and he escapes and forms a little faction that they can then go and take over. What's your Lou, theory, do you wanna, Lou? Do you, yeah, Lou, bring on your I, guess. I don't have a guess right now. Okay. So there is a rebel alliance yes! led, led by Braun Lamia and Johnny's daughter. What? Even though it is 2,000 years later, because she has entered the time to, to, tombs and then reemerged Wait, in the future. Whose daughter? Okay, we gotta, yeah. Whose yeah. daughter? Lamia Brown and Keats, as we will find Johnny. out. Ah, Lamia yeah. Brown and Keats. Yeah, they yeah. have a they good have a job, child. Josh. Good job yeah. with the with the alliance. Good job. And well, I'm I'm, uh, a, I'm imagining them somehow getting the code to the shield that protects the planet that Lenar <laughs> Hoyt and Durayon, and somehow they get through it, and it's a tropical planet. It looks beautiful. Passum. They is, land and they're Passum like ragtag force. No, Passum and, is overcast. It's like okay. 50 degrees overcast, slight uh, methane smell. Um, <laughs> and how many times so have you been there, Jack? <laughs> and that is not how they accomplish it. There is a, a okay, fifth well, column is, within the passum. Hang on. Okay. Is 
like, should we save this revelation for later yes. character stuff? Okay, cool. Sure. So sure. awesome. I love how we're building this. We're building this pod the way the freaking books are built. This is All great. Right. So who's okay. our next story? Yeah. It's Kassad. So who's got Kassad? Colonel Kassad. Colonel Kassad's story is has some of the most gripping action sequences I've ever read. I cannot wait until they are on the big picture because they are going to be completely riveting. Grew up in rough conditions in uh, the slums of one of the big cities there uh, as part of a minority group who called who identified themselves as Palestinians. By the age of 16, he was a gang member, had killed another young man. By 18, the uh, court on Mars gave him a choice of either serving at a Martian work camp or enlisting with a military brigade that was Mars's volunteer task force that was to aid force, which was the hegemony's military outfit, uh, against a rebellion. And, you know, Kassad volunteered for the military force and became part of the John Carter Brigade. And he learned early on that he liked military life. But after the John Carter Brigade was disbanded when they completed their mission, uh, he was only 19, and naturally he applied to become part of force. But he was declined, and he ended up working on the planet of Lussus for a year. And Lussus is one of those planets that has more gravity than Earth, and so the physical labor that he did there helped build his body, and he became a very muscular individual. After he finished up at Lussus, he saved up just enough money to travel, and he wanted to go to Maui Covenant. Who wouldn't want to go there? So beautiful and tropical. But he arrived there just days before the island war began. And we'll learn more about that in the consul story. But he was there on Maui Covenant and was able to enlist in force, even though he hadn't been able to before. While he was on Maui Covenant, force needed some troops. And he joined force in uh, a small capacity in a supply regiment. But he quickly became a distinguished soldier fighting there. And on Maui Covenant, he got a couple distinguished service clusters um, and a valor by the uh, commendation, but from the Senate for valor and two Purple Hearts. And because of his great performance, he was given entrance into the Force Command School, which is their version of, you know, officer school. So by 23, he began his training with Force. Kassad, and as part of his training in Force, took part in a number of full immersion virtual reality combat simulations, uh, which many of which recreated historical battles from old Earth history. In one of these simulations, he was fighting alongside the English in a battle against the medieval French which is a simulation of the Agincourt. Battle of Agincourt. Agincourt, yeah. right. And uh, in that in that simulation, he kind of runs off the battlefield chasing a Frenchman into the woods, and they have a brutal hand-to-hand combat, another great sequence. He's starting to lose, and he's about to experience his simulation death, which all that means is that he would you know, be booted out of the simulation. But a mysterious woman appears and rescues him instantaneously, in this deep battle lust, bloodlust, and now lustlust, Kassad and the woman make love on the battlefield. They continue this lusty affair many times in many locations during most of Kassad's other training simulations. And Kassad eventually learns that her name is Moneta, 
and that she's not just some some part of the simulation, but she's an actual being, probably human being. And Kassad kind of becomes addicted to Moneta. He can't wait for he can't wait for the simulations. <laughs> but after you know a few more simulations, eventually Moneta stops appearing to Kassad. Early in his career, after officer school, he has a uh, big event. He's on the planet of Kam Riyadh, and Kassad is there uh, to intervene in a Shiite-Sunni conflict. He's uh, supposed to neutralize a prophet there, who, without you know, who's causing a lot of problems, without resorting to nuclear warfare. We learn that. You know, Kassad was raised a Muslim, and he believes that um, the God of Islam would neither condone nor allow the slaughter of the innocent. And so he wants to find a way to do this without anyone dying. But unfortunately, the new prophet there continues with his jihad, so Kassad assassinates him with some satellite technology, some satellite laser beams. And that night, for the first time in years, Moneta visits him again. But this time, it's outside of a simulator. Because of that battle, Kassad earns a nickname, Butcher of Brescia. Um, actually, it's not that battle. It's it's the next battle he participates in. It's Kassad earns the nickname, the Butcher of Brescia, because of the Battle of Brescia. Brescia was supposed to be a two-day battle where force and hege- the hegemony easily were to defeat the ousters, as Jack mentioned earlier. Uh, Brescia was in an outback world became uh, the site of a major conflict with the Ousters. It wasn't just a two-day battle. The Brescian society was militaristic and arrogant, and they thought they would be uh, great at fighting the Ousters, and force troops supported them. The consul, we're going to learn his story in a little bit, was the hegemony's representative on Brescia during the Ouster invasion. So according to the consul, the Ouster invasion of Brescia was provoked by the hegemony senate and AI Advisory Council to test the ouster's ability to fight in some of the outer worlds. Uh, the Brescians were provided with torch ships and plasma weapons and impact probes. The council was on Brescia with his wife, Gresha, and his son, Alan, when the ousters arrived. Early in the Battle of Brescia, though, Gassad, not working with the consul, just as a soldier, an officer in the force, there, realizes that the force's modern techniques were not going to work. And so he started leading his troops in brutal guerrilla warfare operations. And his tactics were like, you know, something out of the worst of the world war stories. And the carnage was immense and grotesque. And Kassad prevailed. And thus the hegemony prevailed. And Kassad became a controversial hero. But nevertheless, the Hegemony recognized him as as a hero and that he, he became important sort of face man, front man for them. However, right after that conflict in Brescia, Kassad gets injured by a, a booby trap that was left behind. So he gets shipped off of Brescia on a medical spacecraft. And the next scene is one of the most tense scenes I've ever read in a book. Because while he's on this medical spacecraft above the planet Hyperion – the spacecraft is shot down by the Ousters, and this was a medical spacecraft, but the you know Ousters shot it down. Somehow, Kassad survives within that shot down spaceship, you know, as it's heading towards losing orbit, heading towards Hyperion. He survives by sort of outsmarting it and outpowering the Ouster troops 
the Auster troops kind of send some scouts over to look at the wreckage to make sure nobody's alive. Kassad realizes and somehow gets himself squared away in a special battle suit, rigs up some booby traps, and starts you know offing the Ousters one by one in uh, a, just a great space battle close quarter scene and it's very tense and he you know defeats them just in time to survive and gets on board when i think one of the ouster shuttles and manages to reach the surface of hyperion intact and that is where Kassad again meets moneta she nurses him back to health but also prepares him for a battle we can also note that uh moneta actually puts his clothes on him this time instead of taking them off she enlists the help of the Shrike as well. So the Shrike, Hassad, and Moneta team together to slaughter a group of ousters who have landed and set up a camp outside the time tombs. Another battle scene that's fascinating because the battle scene is in slow motion. Somehow either the Moneta, either Moneta, the Shrike, the power of the time tombs allows them to move super fast and experience the battle in slow motion. Of course, this gives them a huge advantage. Kassad describes how he's able to simply turn aside as a missile goes by him in slow motion, and they avoid all the attacks and destroy the ousters, with one of them escaping. As you can imagine, after this fantastic battle, Moneta and Kassad's lust is on an intensely animalistic level, and they begin their sex scene and it's sort of off the charts but it gets weird at the height of the sex moneta transforms into the shrike and kasad is almost cut to pieces but kasad barely pun intended escapes kasad retires after that kasad retires from military life and he kind of remains reclusive does a little dabbling in some anti-war movements, but he he has a thing about the Shrike, and he wants to kill the Shrike. And he is on this pilgrimage. We're not sure why he's picked, but he wants to be on the pilgrimage because he wants to kill the Shrike. He's, uh, his physical description is that he is, at least according to the console, is that he's brown, fit, and lean with a face carved from cold stone. And Kassad's intense, slow movements would remind you of a jaguar. So, Josh, and anyone else, the same question I asked about Lenar Hoyt. Why is he on the pilgrimage? Why, why do you think he's been selected? Any guesses? Well, his own, his own reason, he wants to kill the Shrike. He wants to kill the Shrike, for sure. Yeah, and I'm wondering also if somehow he thinks that may be a path back to the Mineta he knew before Mineta transformed into the Shrike. He definitely has never experienced anything like Monetta, Monetta before and since. Mm-hmm. Lou, Maureen? I think that it's because he had an interaction with the Shrike or, you know, like a, I guess the Shrike or some type of AI, you know, just like, uh, you know, Father Duray. That's what they have in common. You know, they have like this interaction with this machine. You know, that's a really powerful one. That's my guess. So since Josh has already taken going to kill the Shrike. 
<laughs> I'm going to say that the other option is he would be the turncoat where he his in, he may have the intent to go kill the Shrike, but he may also have the intent to go join sides with the Shrike. So those are the two things that, and like he ends up like leading the Shrike army and being the, the general. So those are the two options that I would have for Kassad. I've got so, another idea for Kassad. I, I love this. Go. He meets the Shrike. And the Shrike is usually pretty silent and doesn't have anything to say to anybody. He's all action, no words. But this time he says, No, I am your father. <laughs> and Kassad is like blown away and freaked out. And he's hand. like screaming, "No, no!" You have no. Right. So here's the deal, <laughs> Josh. Closest, the closest guess of everyone was Josh. Just there, but he's got it reversed. <laughs> the Shrike is like, "I'm your father." No. Oh. No. The Shrike is going backwards in time, as is Moneta. So each time, chronologically, in uh, in Kassad's life, Moneta is old. Is old like the when they meet in Agincourt, that's the oldest version of her we ever see. Oh. The youngest version of her that you see in the first book is last encounter with her. Is his last encounter with her. Oh. Who else do Reich? Yes. Who else do we know that ages backwards? Rachel. Rachel. She's Rachel. No way. She's Rachel. You're full of sh- Are you joking? She's Rachel. And okay, wait. She, wait until she, we get to Rachel's story to tell us how that happens. <laughs> okay, I will. I will. I will wait to do that. So basically, the, Rachel and the Shrike are a dyad. She is the caretaker, the Shrike. Really? Uh, she so the Shrike She's got to like get the own... WD-40 out, spray him down, polish so his the eyeballs. Sh- the Shrike the is dependent on her taxes. <laughs> That's right. So the Shrike has his Always own agency, up. or her own agency. I'm not sure. That entity has its own agency, and it is also controlled or manipulated and designed by its designers, which pre or post date sent back in time, even the fourth book, the end of the fourth book. So the Shrike has different masters at different points. Its final master that we know about is a character that I've mentioned earlier, which we'll get back to when we talk about Johnny and Lamia, but it plays the it plays a fucking kick-ass role in books three and four. I'll just tell you that. I will say there is a an inexplicable part, which is when she turns into the Shrike and almost cuts his penis off. Yes. Yes, that is never addressed in all the books, and I can't make heads or tails of it. So I can, because if that's the first time that she's encountering him, he it's was not, raping it's, her. It's not the first time in this it's the first time in that book. But in the second book, they do battle together against the Shrike. Well, that's going to be a good scene. I think I've seen that. 
Oh, I have seen yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's a good scene. And in the fourth book, she meets him for the first time. Okay. And he's an old man. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. Wow. So, but he eventually does beat the Shrike in hand-to-hand combat. Oh, it's a great scene. Can't oh, wait. That's cool. Yeah. Actor Kassad is. Oh, oh, some Hollywood. Some Hollywood. Hollywood. Oh. Who do you got? William Defoe. William Defoe. For, for who? For either he could be Dure or Hoyt. Love but it. I think, Done. And and Liam Neeson could be. Maybe Liam Neeson could be Dure and then Defoe could be Hoyt. Cause, just saying. I got one. Who do you got? Steve Buscemi. Wow. As who? Yeah. I love it. I love As Dure. It. He always looks sickly. You know? Yes. Yeah, right. Oh, he's, yeah. He's always, he's like every time perfect. you look at him, he looks a little sick. Like, man, that guy's sick. Yeah, and that would be a kind of a different role for him, too, I feel like. Um, like completely you know? different role and he he can act so yeah, yeah. all right get out all right, i like it he's he, he can come in for tryouts <laughs> <laughs> but what about what about Kassad? this was a hard one for me but i had uh, St- uh what's his first name steven momoa he is the he was Aquaman. okay Aquaman. great yeah. job yeah. good job no, he's, he's a specimen. He's a specimen. He's a I wonder, specimen. Though, he's tall, if, dark, but he's not Palestinian. No, well, that's not. true. That's true. He's also – I don't know if he's – I just don't know if he's – I don't know, like complex. So – All right. Mine was – do you guys remember Jaws from Moonraker, the James yeah. Bond movie? Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's who I have, but oh. without the crazy teeth. okay all right well we could bring him back i have vin diesel i just think he can do a good sort of serious uh one focus on a single terry goal and whatever it takes to get there kind of thing um and then as a variation i have lance reddick who was um in a sci-fi tv series that began with an f called the fringe Oh, I love that show. And he was yeah, also he's also in the John Wick movies. He is the maitre d' of the hotel. So I my my Lenar Hoyt is Jimmy Simpson. He play he was he was did you guys do you guys watch It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Yes. Well, I have so not. No shame on you, Maureen. I only know <laughs> uh, the he's one of the hold Bart. on he's one he's in he's in the He's one of the McPoyles. He's also in that show Psych, and he was the kind of main character in Westworld. Oh, okay. He's skinny. He can look unhealthy. Okay. Yeah, we, we all pick skinny people who can look unhealthy. Like Defoe, he can do a skinny, unhealthy thing. Yeah. How about Moneta? Anybody I got anybody for Moneta? I do not have her. No, like whoever led it was who was the lead in that in I think it was called Serenity. It was oh. like Summer Glau. Oh uh, yeah, she would be a good choice. <laughs> but she's oh. small. I know she's kind of small, but I guess she would be could be a good choice. I only think of Gina Torres, and I think of her all the time because she's gorgeous. 
It's got to be somebody super hot and mm-hmm. like. Yes. Yeah. So Moneta eventually needs to kick ass. You said, right? Moneta kicks quite quite a lot of ass. Oh yeah, she's Gina true Torres badass. Would be great. <laughs> so who's our next story? Martin Salinas, the poet. Okay. So when I read this book, both times I've read through this book, he's in all four stories. And I did not like this character. He's the only character who I did not like until I found my casting choice. Okay. I can't wait to hear this. So I'm going to start with my casting. And and, and I'm going to start and then I'm going to drop my casting a little early in my thing. So here is the one of the old families, one of the last families to leave Earth. Um, picture a, an aristocratic family that has fallen on hard times. They still are referred to as the lord, you know, of the manor, but the manor is going into into disrepair and ruin. There's no more serfs to work the land. That's that's the world, the earth he grew up on. It was after this accident, this black hole accident, but before the earth had been destroyed. He, his family has some money. His mom is predominant in his life. He has um, his own little mini spaceship that he uses within the earth's atmosphere. And he could go from New York to um, South Africa in like, you know, eight minutes on his 100G spaceship. And he's just living the good life. His uh, eventually he needs to leave Earth. What he doesn't know is that his family is in debt. And the way he needs to leave Earth is on a spaceship rather than through a farcaster. So there's a concept in this book called a time debt. And that time debt is when you are traveling in excess of light speed, time is moving fast faster for everyone else except the traveler so if i was traveling in excess of light speed between here and andromeda back and forth when i came back i might and let's say it took me two hours of my time my kids could be five years older right so while i'm not describing it perfectly my point is he takes a journey that is over a century long. And when he arrives at his destination, he's no older. Uh, and he's essentially been frozen for a year. The technology around freezing somebody was not that good. And he uh, had major mental reversals, almost like a severe stroke. Could not speak anymore. He only had a couple words. The challenge to that is that he fancied himself as a poet. So he had had some minor success as a poet, and now he is uh, limited to just a few words like fuck and shit fuck and fuck face. So his what he discovered and he goes poopy. to this a lot of poopy, a lot of poopy. <laughs> and he goes to this land where they need human laborers to do some work. And it's a highly ra- radioactive land. And he has to work in poopy and dirt, and he only has these few words. 
And he, this was a big, but his mind is still as good as it ever had been, but his ability to communicate had been nearly lost. And he discovered two things. The first is that if he really worked hard at something, he actually found it to be somewhat enjoyable. Uh, and that the trappings of his earlier life, he looked back on it with almost um, embarrassment and shame. The other thing he learned is that if you can't, if you can um, communicate by just words like fuck face and poopy face and just a few other words, similar potty words, then you can communicate in those words. You can communicate when you're given the rest of the words, you're just like super empowered. And little by little, he gains back language. Eventually, he writes um, a, a poem that is uh, an epic about the fall of Earth. It becomes the number one book um, and propels him into super riches. And he's got houses all over the place and his house is filled with farcasters. And then he hit, he suffers writer's block and he is encouraged by his agent to write um, uh, serials, which are of course beneath him. And, uh, but he does it for the money. And then he wants to write something real again. And he's been now, he's several hundred years old at this point because he has, um, with his wealth, access to life-extending technology. And um, he is very unlikable, in my opinion, through this entire thing. And, and I want to create the environment of what this dude must be like. How would you like to hang out with somebody who carries themselves like they're superior to you and constantly is rhyming? <laughs> Just like I have met, especially in like my 20s, I knew people in their teens who would feel awkward in a group and do a little beatbox in a group that, you know, kind of wasn't germane to the conversation and like rhyme some stuff. And I always <laughs> did not find don't like being around that. I didn't like it ever. I was just like, dude, come on. You're just if you're this uncomfortable, just shut up. Don't say anything. But I just found like it's just unbearable just beatboxing <laughs> and i thought well who what individuals could rhyme most of the time live a wild life where you even become like uh, like half animal at different points and me still be fascinated in them and maybe even want to be around them and i came up with one person and this person i think is the perfect casting and it's kanye west if Kanye, if you're in a drive, let's say you, you guys are on the D.C. area. Oh, if you had to drive to Charleston, South Carolina with somebody and they only rhymed and they would rip off things you say, it would be horrible and unbearable and just drop in. Worst ride ever. Worst ride ever. But what if it was Kanye? Worst ride ever. Sorry. Even guys. with Kanye? Yes. See, I think you are almost, that's ride. like being exposed to radioactive material that never in your life will you have another opportunity to be exposed to radioactive. It would be fascinating and enriching. And you would never fucking forget it. 
So now that, now that we're talking about it this way, I would put Will Ferrell in that role in a hot second. Ooh, ooh. And Different then, vibe, but yes. Now but I not, like that character. This is a serious man, though, who takes himself extremely seriously. Did you see Stranger Than Fiction? It was great. Very yeah. good. I liked it. Yeah, yeah. So who so, would look better in a satyr conversion? Because right, because he spends. Kanye would look better in a satyr, but who can yeah. act more like an animal, a funny animal? I think Will Ferrell. So Will I think Ferrell Kanye probably. would look better, but Kanye Ferrell just will... looks better in general. <laughs> yeah. He does. He does. All right. So I had, I had let's bring them Dino. both in, dress them up as satyrs. Oh. They could do tryouts. Who, who did you have, Lou? I had Danny DeVito. Hercules. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, because of the description of. Uh, of, of the yeah of, yeah uh, yeah you know I, I could go how about Daniel Day Daniel Day Lewis just being a serious serious rhyming son of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> that'd be fun to see that'd be fun to see so what about to Colin continue, Mockery from Whose Line Is It Anyway <laughs> yes right. he would work right to continue his story topic. he eventually wanting to write the a great piece of literature hooks up with a, a patron this patron is the sad king billy sad king billy is really rich and he essentially for all intents and purposes just takes his entire court and moves to hyperion commissions a huge statue of himself built into the side of a, of a build of a mountain um and builds the poet city and he just imports poets and um artists and musicians to be in his court and live in the city. And eventually it's not, the city is not far from the time tube, time tomes to time tombs. And eventually murders start to take place. Gruesome blood across the ceiling, intestines everywhere, murders. And it's rumored that it's the Shrike. Meanwhile, he is working on this piece of art called the Hyperion Cantos, which is to be his legacy. And he writes, as he writes the Hyperion Cantos, the more into it he is, the more present the Shrike is, the more murders there are. Finally, Sad King Billy figures it out. You need to stop writing that. He refuses. Eventually, the Shrike shows up and kills Sad King Billy in a brutal way in front of him. Um, he's left alone in the city begging for death in a sense, borderline suicidal. Um, and then he kind of disappears and now he's back. Um, he's, he's still famous. Um, but people, uh, you know, he's famous in a history book sort of way. He's not, um, it's not like he's churning out new stuff. And he has put away the Hyperion Cantos, lived a life of debauchery, wine, women, and song. And now he wants to finish the Hyperion Cantos. And his motivation is to finish this masterpiece. And he needs his muse, and his muse is the Shrike. And that is why he himself wants to be on this journey. Anything so, to add? Take away? Questions? So what I... Now that we're going all over this and we have you as our Hyperion expert, what I am learning 
I took this book at face value and I knew that there were more books coming after this. But what I have discovered is that this first book is really a preface for the for everything, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. He so he wrote the he wrote two books, and his publisher brought the first one. And the publisher said it's awesome, but no one wants to read a fourteen hundred page book, and they kind of almost they cut it off. Ah. Then he did this same th- thing with Endymion, the Endymion, Endymion books, Endymion ah. books, yeah. I like it. I like so it. he continues the Hyperion. He never finishes his poem in the first book, or at the end of the second, I guess he does. And then in the third and fourth books, um, you realize. Wait, should we guess? Sure, it's not as interesting as the other ones, but go for it. Okay, so he finishes his poem. And yep. the Shrike has a change of heart because it's so beautiful. No. <laughs> yes, no. Right. No, I got so it. He... I got it. I got it what it is. I know what it is. Okay. The Shrike starts to rap his poems. Doing and they become the thing. most, I mean, it, you know, because he got the rights to it. It becomes the most watched rap everywhere. Hmm. And, um, Martin Salinius gets rich again and can go back to being like a really super successful guy. A lot of people don't know this, but it was actually Martin Salinius and the Shrike that did Hey Ya first. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. Perfect. (laughs) So he does get hung on the Tree of Pain. Oh, yeah. the tree of pain. Oh, oh. Yes. What? Really? Through his, yeah, through his sternum. Did he get crucified? For almost the entire of the second book. He's just hanging on this. Are you serious? Yes, he does. Yeah. Um, he does not get cruciformed. He has enough money and wiliness to avoid the cruciform. He lives in seclusion for 500 years to avoid the cruciform, but he keeps his a pulse on society and he is served by a batik that entire time the blue android who pilots their barge god mm, that's cool oh, that's yeah cool. and it is his job to identify uh the hero um <clears throat> endymion and he identifies this guy endymion whatever i can't pronounce it but uh, who is the kind of hero slash protector in books three and four. Um, and he dies on old earth at the end of book four with he the Shrike, with the Shrike standing at attention at his gravesite. Like doing him honors. I would, that's the way I read it. Interesting. Yeah, the poet was an interesting character because I didn't like him either. Every time I was, we were in his story, I was like, "Oh, not the poet," because of his his irreverence, his uh-huh. he's just boring. <laughs> but he also, in his story, we learn a ton about the world. Yes, yeah. we learned we learned more about the world in his story probably than anybody else's story. And um, I didn't like him. I didn't like his choices in life. <laughs> <laughs> um, but don't you find it odd that he and Lamia Brown were hooking up? 
They weren't hooking up. They were uh, totally hooking up. When did that happen? They were not hooking it. up. In it's totally implied book? that they were hooking up. Go back and reread oh. like the interaction between those two. They hated each other on That's their journey. Insane. But they were hooking up. No, they really hated each other. They weren't definitely not hooking up. They grew to have a grudging respect for each other. And he served almost as a surrogate father slash uncle to her child. Um, I'm, I'm, that's just, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go back and reread it. And I, I'm saying. Report back to us. Okay. This will be future episodes. So Martin Salinius, here's the last little nook on him. I think before we can move on. I think he hit the first two books, the Hyperion books, um, in the third and fourth books, he it, the first two books are almost treated as the story told by Martin Salinius and that he's an unreliable narrator. Yes. Hmm? So these are his stories and he's an unreliable narrator. And some of the things that he was unreliable about or could not have known, uh, he just made up. And they get cleared up in books three and four. Oh. Frankly, I would say that's the second greatest weakness of the entire series. <clears throat> because um, it seems like Dan Simmons wanted to like get a do-over on a couple things that he did. So he just kind of threw that in. I am, my opinion, it's my favorite group of books of all time. So I have a, I, 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 any criticism I have is like criticizing like a, you know, a gem, you know, that has the four C's and just like one C is not the very best, but um, that would be a minor criticism. Who's next? Saul. Saul Weintraub. Saul Weintraub, the wandering Jew, who's also called. Saul Weintraub is one of the seven pilgrims in Hyperion on the final Shrake pilgrimage. He is Jewish, but uh, turns out he's not the most devout or, or very staunch believer. He's more of a scholar. He's a professor. He's teaching history. He teaches classical studies and ethical evolution at a college on one of the one of the planets in the hegemony. He was given the nickname the Wandering Jew because it captures his constant search for his daughter Rachel's mysterious, unique, reverse aging condition. That's been dubbed the Merlin sickness. Saul was constantly searching for a cure for it. So um, we need to get into the story of Rachel because Saul's and Rachel's stories are one and the same pretty much. So Rachel was a very gifted child to Saul Weintraub and his wife. And uh, she probably could have done anything with her life. And what she decided to do was to study archaeology on Barnard's world. Um, And from there, she departed to go to the planet of Hyperion for her postgraduate studies to study the famous time tombs. One night, she was on duty inside the Sphinx tomb when there was a disturbance in the anti-entropic fields shielding the tomb. And the temple started to close in on her in a frightening claustrophobic scene. And while that was happening, she saw the Shrike before she lost consciousness. She eventually regained consciousness. And it was soon discovered that she had contracted a puzzling ailment. Like Benjamin Button, her body was aging backward at the same rate it had aged forward. Most tragically, each day she lost a day's worth of memories. 
as well as memories of everything that had happened since the incident. Her parents tried to find a solution for her problem, but neither science nor religion could help them. And her family's powerlessness and Rachel's trauma of rediscovering her ailment each morning presents some of the most tragic scenes in the story. Saul and his wife, Sarah, are happy, basically, until Rachel returns from Hyperion with the Merlin sickness. And even before she returned, though, Saul started having a dream that would begin to feel prophetic. In the dream, he is walking toward two glowing ovals when he hears a voice. Saul, take your daughter, your only daughter, Rachel, whom you love, and go to the world called Hyperion and offer her there as a burnt offering at one of the places of which I shall tell you. Yikes. So with Rachel's return, Saul spends a lot of time comparing the dream to that of Abraham's story in the Old Testament. Finally, Saul concludes that uh, any allegiance to a deity or concept or universal principle which put obedience above just ordinary decent behavior toward an innocent human being must be an evil allegiance or evil concept or evil principle. Saul and Sarah raise Rachel as she ages backwards. They do their best to protect her from the media and then after her pleading, pleading, about the in, with her despair that's you know inherent to rediscovering every, every day that she can't remember anything what had happened previously in her life they even protect her even more they even agree to stop telling Rachel about her condition because it's just too heartbreaking to Rachel every time by the time Rachel reverse ages to her very young self Sarah re reveals Saul's wife Sarah reveals that she's been having the same dream Saul has had all those years Except she wants to take Rachel to Hyperion. And instead of sacrificing Rachel, Sarah thinks she and Saul should sacrifice themselves. Saul's not so sure about this, and he suggests that Sarah go on a vacation. And in tragedy upon tragedy, on vacation, Sarah gets in a car accident, basically, and dies. So Saul takes Rachel on the Shrike pilgrimage during Rachel's last days of life. We In this story, we see her be more and more returning to you know day one of being a baby and uh, Saul Weintraub is described as, as having sad luminous eyes and he's a calming presence as well as the baby Rachel to the other pilgrims during the pilgrimage some of the most poignant scenes in the book are from the chapter on Saul Weintraub and in fact I think I'm going to read one of my favorite passages that comes from this on Rachel's 24 first birthday, she came to Saul's door an hour after they all had turned in. Daddy? What is it, kiddo? Saul pulled on his robe and joined her in the doorway. Can't sleep? I haven't slept for two days. Been taking stay awake so I can get through all the briefing stuff I left in the want-to-know file. Saul nods. Daddy, would you come downstairs and have a drink with me? I've got some things I want to talk about. Saul got his glasses from the nightstand and joined her downstairs. It proved to be the first and only time that Saul would get drunk with his daughter. It was not a boisterous drunk for a while they chatted, then uh, began telling jokes and making puns until each was giggling too hard to continue. Rachel started to tell another story, sipped her drink, just the funniest part, and almost snorted whiskey out her nose. She was laughing so hard, each of them thought it was the funniest thing that had ever happened. I'll get another bottle, said Saul when the tears had ceased. Dean Moore gave me some scotch last Christmas, I think. When he returned, walking carefully, Rachel had sat up on the couch and brushed her hair back with her fingers. He poured her a small amount, and the two drank in silence for a while. 
Daddy? Yes? I, I went through the whole thing. Saw myself, listened to myself, saw the Holos and Lena and all the others, all middle-aged. Hardly middle-aged, said Saul. Lena will be 35 next month. Well, old. You know what I mean. Anyway, I read the medical briefs, saw the photos from Hyperion. And you know what? What? I don't believe any of it, Dad. Saul put down his drink and looked at his daughter. Her face was fuller than before, less sophisticated and even more beautiful. I mean, I mean, I do believe it. It's not like you and Mom would put on such a cruel joke. Plus, there's your, your age and the news and all. I know it's real, but I don't believe it. Do you know what I mean, Dad? Yes. I mean, I woke up this morning and I thought, great, tomorrow's the paleontology exam and I've hardly studied. I was looking forward to showing Roger Sherman a thing or two. He thinks he's so smart. Saul took a drink. Roger died three years ago in a plane crash south of Broussard. Saul would not have spoken without the whiskey in him, but he had to find out if there was a Rachel hiding within Rachel. I know, said Rachel, and pulled her knees up to her chin. I accessed everybody I knew. Graham's dead. Professor Eichhardt isn't teaching anymore. Nikki married some salesmen. A lot happens in four years. More than 11 years, said Saul. The trip to and from Hyperion left you six years behind us stay-at-homes. But that's normal, cried Rachel. People travel outside the web all the time. They cope. But this is different, kiddo. Rachel managed to smile and drain the last for whiskey. Boy, what an understatement. She set the glass down with a sharp final sound. Look, here's what I've decided. I spent two and a half days going through all the stuff she, I, prepared to let me know what's happened, what's going on, and it just doesn't help. Saul sat perfectly still, not even daring to breathe. I mean, knowing what, knowing that I'm getting younger every day, losing the memory of people I haven't even met yet, I mean, what happens next? I just keep getting younger and smaller and less capable until I just disappear someday. Jesus, Dad. Rachel wrapped her arms more tightly around her knees. It's sort of funny in a weird way, isn't it? No. No, I'm sure it's not. Her eyes, always large and dark, were moist. It must be the worst nightmare in the world for you and Mom. Every day you have to watch me come down the stairs, confused, waking up with yesterday's memories, but hearing my own voice tell me that yesterday was years ago, that I had a love affair with some guy named Emilio. Emilio. Whatever, it just doesn't help, Dad. By the time I can even begin to absorb it, I'm so worn out that I have to sleep, then, well, you know what happens then. What? began Saul and had to clear his throat. What do you want us to do, little one? Rachel looked him in the eye and smiled. It was the same smile she had gifted him with since her fifth week of life. Don't tell me, Dad, she said firmly. Don't let me tell me. It just hurts. I mean, I didn't live those times. She paused and touched her forehead. You know what I mean, Dad? 
the Rachel who went to another planet and fell in love, got hurt. That was a different Rachel. I shouldn't have to suffer her pain. She was crying now. Do you understand? Do you? Yes. He opened his arms and felt her warmth and tears against his chest. Yes, I understand. This book has so many different rich stories. I'm sad now. <laughs> this is That's not the saddest seed. No, it's not. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I'm still sad. Aww. You brought everybody down, Josh. Bad Josh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get back up. Let's get back up. <laughs> All right. So, Rachel. So, she's the caretaker for the Shrike, you said, Jack? Yes, that's her her duty is the goddess of the muse, uh, mother of the muse. That's right. Caretaker. Okay. Now, did the Shrike pick Rachel specifically? Or no. was it just, okay, so it was just like, there's somebody here. I think they can take care of me. So I'm going to set off this like time pulse and make sure that they get back to me somehow. Mm, I would say the AIs that are. If I were to guess, it's not ex- explicitly stated, or if it is, I missed it. I would say the AIs that were in, um, uh, La- you know, Johnny and Lamia's child's camp would have picked uh, Rachel, um, it, or maybe even um, the child from the from the uh, second series would have picked Rachel. She was Rachel. She was best friends with that character. She had some mastery over time. And, um, you know, at the end of the second book, uh, Saul and Rachel, you don't see it, but you are told it that they get to spend life together and Saul gets to raise her um, up to the age she is in, in book three. And I assume Saul probably passes away from old age, but he gets to he gets his own heaven, which is that he gets to raise his daughter a second time. That's cool. There, see, that's uh, that's sweet. Now I'm yeah. happy again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bring us back up. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. <laughs> Glad I could help. Glad I could help. Uh, but anybody she, want to cast him? So I got one for him, and uh, it maybe it's it's too obvious. Like I, I like maybe it's not creative enough or off the wall enough. But um, Ermin Traub from uh, Better Call Saul series. Oh yeah, I love him. Yeah, he's Good he's pick. a real deal actor. He and is his, great. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. um, yeah, that's who I got. He's the scholar. Nice. That's good. I had Sean Penn or Daniel Day-Lewis, but I kind of like your idea a little better. But we could bring Sean and Daniel in to try out just to I don't, give. I don't, yeah, but I wouldn't. I don't want to give it to Sean because I don't want to deal with him. <laughs> yeah. You know, just mm-hmm. like he's not going to be the only star in our set. You know what I mean? He's going to be like a. He, he can't. He's going to diva out. Yeah. 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 Uh, I said no green jelly beans. Yeah, yeah, I heard about that. I heard about that one. God, God, it was crazy. I I wish Jerry Orbach was alive because I would also 
have him be Saul. He's another. He's a good one for Saul. You know who else would be good? Who was the guy in um, Mary Poppins? Um, Lin Manuel uh, Miranda. Dick no, Van no, Dyke. No. Dick Van Dyke. The, the yeah, modern one that was done. No, Dick Van Dyke. Dick Van Dyke. Uh, he'd be good in anything except for probably uh, Cassad. Except for what? Oh, Cassad? No, he would not be a good Cassad. <laughs> Uh, hey, you know, we've gotten through a bunch of the characters. I think it might be time for us to take a break and hear a word from one of our sponsors. Well, Books from Earth is partnering with the Putra Insurance Company. They want us to make sure that all the zombies that tune into our pod know about their accidental death and dismemberment insurance. Uh, you all probably know what AD&D insurance is. Um, you could look on the back of, a, a, you know, when you're engaged in certain activities, you're, you go to the ice rink or whatever, and, you know, like on the back of the card, it's got some th- some thing, or you get a job, and if you were like me when you were younger in a warehouse, and, you know, you're on the back, you know, if you cut, lose your finger, it's worth a thousand bucks, you lose your thumb, it's worth five thousand, etc., well, uh, it, this type of insurance is very straightforward. It's a fixed, predetermined cash benefit that's paid out when a policyholder policy suffers uh, specific outlined enumerated dismemberments. So, you know, lose a finger, get a thousand, lose a thumb, get lose your arm from the elbow down, 25,000, et cetera. So what Putra does is important because zombies, unlike us humans, run a much greater risk of dismemberment. And um, that's due to their natural decaying process and the constant use of edged weapons against them. Um, Not many people know this, but zombies are 500% more likely than a living person to suffer a serious dismemberment. So something's got to be done. Let's take Matteo, for example. He's been shuffling around for a long time. He's been undead since Eisenhower was in office. He's very old. Putrefication has uh, set in very deeply, and he has a lot of exposed bone, dressed in rags, shuffling around, moaning about brains. If you don't know Matteo, you've certainly met someone just like him. Well, recently both his legs fell off from the hip down, just to do to the natural decaying process. So he spends his time dragging himself around, moaning about brains. Not a great life. Fortunately, um, Putra accidental death, death and dismemberment, uh, his insurance policy, it took the sting out of um, his recent loss because he received a $50,000 benefit, $25,000 per, per leg. So his undead life still sucks, but it, you know that $50,000 sure makes it better. One more example. Sophia recently died and rose from the grave um, because she didn't know she was carrying a zombie virus. And uh, as a freshly undead creature, she had no defense against her desire for human brains. And that desire brought her in range of the village she grew up in. And you guys know what happened next. An angry mob set upon her with edged weapons. And um, she lost her right ear and her right arm from the shoulder down due to a meat cleaver. Thankfully, though, um, she was covered, and she received five, a $5,000 benefit for the ear and 25000 for the arm. So 
I'm just giving you those examples uh, to underscore the benefits of AD&D insurance for zombies. And if you're a zombie or you know a zombie who needs insurance, call Putra. Um, but remember, they don't cover just zombies. They cover the entire undead community. Find them on the web at www.putra.com backslash books from Earth to learn more. Putra, proudly serving the insurance needs of the undead since 1976. Now, back to the pod. Hi, and I just want to add that I already have a Putra policy. You can still get them while you're human, with or without the zombie virus already infecting you. So that way, if you wake up from the grave uh, and run right into the angry mob right away, you uh, can have the comfort that you will not have to sign up a policy between the grave and the angry villagers. You can already have a policy in place protecting you. Much cheaper if you buy it while you're living. And uh, Jack, can, do, can you let me know, do they have any separate policies for Igors, for people that, you know, are undead and lose a limb but then do get it reattached? Like, do they have a separate policy for that? They do, and it covers durable medical equipment. For oh, fantastic. Yeah, so if you have, like, scoliosis or osteopenia or something like that, um, mm-hmm. and you need a brace, they'll cover the cost. Okay. Yeah. I'll have that's to let a, my aunt. That's no. a good addendum. Okay, sorry for the distraction there, and thank you for the sponsorship. Our next story is Braun Lamia. The the detective. The detective. Detective. Tech noir. Gosh, you can just picture it. Very Blade Runner-esque. Braun Lamia is the only woman of the seven pilgrims that undertake the final strike pilgrimage. She is a highly capable private investigator from the industrial high-gravity planet of Lussus. I like to call it Lucius. <laughs> My favorite Lucius. planet. It's Lucius. Yes. Lucius has yes. stronger gravity than Earth. So she is shorter and more muscular than average. She is the daughter of belated Senator Byron Lamia, who had worked closely with Senate CEO Melena Gladstone before Gladstone took office. Braun became a private investigator after her father's apparent suicide, rather than going into politics, mainly because she couldn't believe her dad would have killed himself. In the role of private investigator, Braun is approached by a man simply known as Johnny to investigate his own murder. Johnny is a cybrid, an AI in a human body that is controlled by the Technicore, which in this case is the reconstructed personality of the famous 19th century romantic poet John Keats. So he is basically John Keats in cybrid, an AI John Keats in a human body. This murder actually only involved his cybrid body being disconnected from the Technicore very briefly like maybe two minutes, and the removal of a few days of his memory. Though his AI personality was nearly immediately restored to full integration with his body. But that's nevertheless is what he is describing as his murder. After spending some time with Johnny, Braun becomes romantically involved with him, which results in her pregnancy. The murder case investigation points Braun and Johnny to the planet of, you guessed it, Hyperion. However, Johnny is killed before they can go there together. 
And just before Johnny dies, he implants his being consciousness into a chip stored in Braun's body, thus preserving the possibility that he could be rebooted someday. To travel to Hyperion, Braun joins the final Shrike pilgrimage, which I still argue she had her rebound relationship with Martin Selenius. But that's up <laughs> In her story, we learn about the Technicore and the AI, the different factions of the AI. And there's this great scene where Lamia and uh, Johnny and this hacker hack into the Technicore and travel through it and discover something very important and, and barely get out alive, at least Lamy and Keats do. And there's some great battle scenes between the two of them as well. It's a very well-rounded story that reads like a, a detective noir. That was a super cool scene, and I really hope that one day I get to see that on the big screen. Yeah. My, my favorite part of her story is at the very end, in the promenade, when they're trying to get into the Shrike church itself and they, the red robed priests of the, of the church of atonement are there on the steps and they're trying to get up the steps and there's forces trying to prevent them from getting up the steps. And it's a kick-ass battle scene. And of course she's quite a badass. And, um, she, is unfortunately Johnny dies in her arms. Yeah, it's a great tense battle scene. Yeah, they're they're seeking refuge in the um, Church of the Shrike. So, remind me who was trying to stop them? Anybody want to cast either of these two? Yeah, I've got her, Ronda Rousey. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh no, that's amazing! I love it. Yeah. Badass, muscular, um, beautiful, exuberant, um, Ronda Rousey. I kind of like uh, Frankie Adams, who plays Draper on The Expanse. Ah, uh, yes. She's not smart, but she just seems to have the look and the right kind of – I don't know. I could see her just being a detective. I just want her in everything. She's amazing. Good. Oh, she's so good. Very good I, this season. I had her as Gina Carano. Hey, I had that name too. <laughs> Mandalorian. She's a beast. Oh yeah, she's from the Mandalorian, mm, right? Yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. she's, the shock <laughs> she's the shock trooper on the run. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got to bring both of them in, and then we'll do, we'll have all three. We'll put all three of them in the octagon, and whoever's left standing gets the thing. It's not even a all cast; it's just choices. a fist fight. <laughs> Very good choices. Very good choices. So, Jack, how does this fit into the entire Hyperion story? How does the so Johnny's kid their, and their child is grew up very fast, sentient in the womb, uh, probably before they're on Hyperion, mm. because she has access to the Shron Loop that, which is the chip um, inside Lamia. And she's having conversations with her father, who lives on in the Shrone Roof for a while before, um, you know, he dies. And she is born um, on Hyperion, where uh, Bron Lamia chooses to um, stay. And 
she lives a somewhat idyllic life with her mom and her uncle, Martin. Uh, and then one day um, she enters the time tombs when she is a young adult. 476 years later, she will be she will exit the time tombs as a adult. You know, she enters as an adolescent and then for her, it's very quick. But for the everyone else, it's 476 years later. By this point, everyone has accepted the cruciform for the most part, you know, 95 percent of the population, 99, except for a few outback places like Hyperion. The uh, Shrike Church is gone. Templars are gone. Everything is run um, by the Spanish Inquisition Catholic Church. There's a priest, um, De Soya, who is uh, leading the uh, these troops stationed outside the time tombs when they open. And out of one of the tunnels blasts uh, Endymion on the magic carpet, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon, and scoops her up right before she's snagged by the the police and the military. <clears throat> and uh, right as that's happening, the Shrike exits the time tubes with her as her guardian and protector. Ah. And he just decimates everybody. Um, but since they all have... Um, and he de- the, the Shrike decimates them so bad, including the removal of their cruciforms. Thus begins a chase across the galaxy. Um, she's being chased by this DeSoya character who is maybe my favorite character in all of the books and eventually has a change of heart, becomes a good guy. But uh, she's chased across time with Endymion as her protector. Her DNA, her very DNA is the antithesis of the cruciform. And it's free will, it's free will, it's free choice. And there are other people in history who had similar DNA, uh, like Jesus Christ. And when he said, drink of my blood, he did not mean that figuratively. He meant it literally, and that brought freedom to to the, the people that were able to drink of his blood, and that they shared it, and they shared it. But oh, she, that's so cool. Yeah, is eventually treated like a virus by the Catholic Church, led by, led by Lenar Hoyt. And the um, DNA in her blood, if you drink it, then it kills the cruciform. And oh. eventually gets you very similar to like a Buddhistic nirvana interconnected with people. Uh, kind of uh, in this in like that Netflix show Sensate, where you can kind of like be in their lives in different ways and experience things. I love and, that show. And that's the thing, and that's the the story in uh, books three and four is her maturation and the um, Endymion protecting her and um, as the as she grows and travels to different lands, converting the masses. Great, cool. great stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've got one more to cover, and it's uh, a doozy for sure. Uh, the console himself. The console. This is the last story of the book, and the console is the grandson of Marin Aspect and Siri, 
and he was born on the, on the oceanic planet of Maui Covenant. His his um, his father, uh, Danelle Aspect, was the first home rule council of Maui Covenant. His grandfather, who was the catalyst of Ceres Rebellion, when he when he destroyed the first forecaster on Maui Covenant. And Jack, I, I didn't go really into Ceres Rebellion. Jack, do you want to say a little bit? They always had, yeah, just really quickly, they have a independent streak there. Siri was an emotional and spiritual leader of the people of Maui Covenant who really wanted to live their simple, idyllic kind of Mardi Gras lifestyle. And, um, (laughs) but it's beautiful there. And with the Motile Islands, islands that migrate um, throughout the year, and and there's a lot of natural resources and the rebellion is against the hegemony of man who is putting in a um, farcaster, which will, of course, ruin their idyllic land. Think of the island of Molokai in Hawaii, which is only, you know, is reserved for um, the native Hawaiians. And you're not supposed to get visitors from the outside. Think of this as a land, a whole planet like that. At this Mardi Gras party, a fight breaks out. Eventually, um, this guy who, who you mentioned, Merrick, has this uh, magic carpet. He uh, he's I, I view him as like a merchant marine, and he's in and out of this land, and he's in love with this woman, Siri, who is aging much faster than him because she is, you know, in, on terrestrial time. And uh, eventually... Um, in almost in her honor, he destroys the Farcaster, leading to eventually that island or that island's planet really paying for it down the road. And the consul is the grandson of these two characters. Great, thank you. So, <laughs> so where was I? Okay. The war ensuing was called Ceres Rebellion after his grandmother and his grandfather, Marin, convinced him not to participate in the rebellion and as a result, saving his life. Um, His father became a senator um, and the council went to school after that on Tau City Center. From there, he went to work in a corporation and married Gresham, his wife. Then he joined the diplomatic corps after that, uh, and he requested the post outside of the web. And he did very well as a counsel. He did very well as a diplomat, rose very quickly. And in his opinion, his job was to de- was to destroy in- indigenous life or anything that threatened humanity. And uh, so he moved around several places, and, and Hebron was one of the places he went to. And there is when he really started feeling guilty, you know, uh, and not just for destroying the indigenous life, but destroying the the colonists also, you know. And then after that, he went on a, on an alcoholic stupor. And also had an addiction to the drug flashback, which is, you know, a future drug. And uh, from there he went to, for, and then after, the, and 
because he was so far away, it didn't affect his career. Uh, and from there, he went to Brescia uh, with his wife. And that's where his son and his wife were both killed uh, with the fighting with the ousters, you know, in a god-awful accident. Um, his aim was to be trusted. But the whole time, his aim was to be trusted by the, hege the hegemony, and he succeeded. He, he was the diplomat in charge of direct negotiations with the outsiders, with the ousters. The plan was for the hegemony to, to provoke an attack and start a war. And that's where, and, and he was also going to be a double agent. And that's when he was posted to the ward of Apirian. And it was there he became a double agent. And it was there he also discovered the death of Earth was deliberate. It was a vast, vast conspiracy by the Technicor and the, and the failing, at that time, the failing hegemony. He then came back to the web and, the, and he really became a double agent, maybe even a triple agent. And then on Hyperion, then, then he, was, he was assigned to Hyperion. And there, he opened the time tombs, and that's how he betrayed the ousters, and um, and then he escapes back to his homeworld, you know. And so I will leave it at this, in his own words, because I love I love his passage of how he should be. This is how he wants to be remembered, and he says, "But when the time comes to judge, to understand the betrayal, which was spread like flame across the web." which will end worlds. I ask you not to think of me. My name was not even writ on water, as your, as your lost poet's soul said, but to think of old earth dying for no reason, to think of the dolphins, their gray, their gray flesh drying and rotting in the sun, to see as, as I have seen, the Malta Isles with no place to wander, their feeding grounds destroyed, they, they quit, Equatorial shallows scabbed with drilling platforms, the islands themselves burdened with shouting, trampling tourists smelling of UV lotion and cannabis. Or better yet, think of none of that. Stand as I did after throwing the switch, a murderer, a betrayer, but still proud, feet firmly planted on Hyperion's shifting sand, head held high, fist raised against the sky, crying a plague on both your house for you for you for you see i remember my grandmother's dream i remember the way it could have been ah uh, well done the consul is one of the most interesting characters to me because he sort of leads off the story he in, in my mind he's sort of the narrator when no one else is telling their story and, exactly and and to find out at the beginning he's told by millennia gladstone that one of the seven pilgrims is a traitor and and it almost like she, she kind of you. I kind of think at the beginning, I think she wants him, the consul, to find out who amongst the seven is the traitor. Traitor, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it, it's funny because we, you know, at the beginning of the book, we don't know who is the traitor, right? Right. We and don't. then, and then there's a scene where he's like, I can't believe, like he is. He's like, I can't believe I'm telling you this story, you know, mm -hmm. because the, he's telling him that you know basically that he, he he knows he's going to tell him i am the double agent no one's ever heard yeah. this story yeah you know yeah 
So I don't. He's like a double, um, triple agent. The console is. He is. He is. He doesn't work. He's not really working for anybody. He hates everybody. He's like he has this deep seated resentment towards the ousters, you know, and the hegemony. In the second book, he displays uh, a connection with the ousters. Actually, I think that yeah. I forget how he gets to that point, but he he um, he has a real connection with the ousters. Yeah, well, he does admire them, you know. He does admire the ousters in a way. He, he definitely admires the ousters. And I don't think the ousters are bad guys. No. The hegemony has kind of made them out to be bad guys, but we don't really know why, what they've done, if anything, to make them bad. Think of them as like the horsemen riding off the steep, you know, or the Russian steps or whatever it's called. And, uh, you know, occasionally taken out a village and taken the farm, you know, all the farm animals because they had to, you know, and, uh, but they were living according to their own code. I don't think they were inherently bad. They're just the barbarians outside the gates. So let me play it back real quick about his triple agent stuff. And you guys can help me out if I'm off. He begrudgingly takes this life in politics as a, you know, kind of a civil servant in the call it the foreign service. But he hasn't had an awakening yet because if he were awake, he wouldn't have done this because of the, his own family history and his history as a citizen of Maui Covenant. But he little by little has some awakenings, and then his family is killed on Brezia essentially by Kassad, you know, in, yes. the, in his in his um, rampage or the response to his rampage. At that point he is asked to parlay with the ousters by Mina Gladstone. He does that, and then he he's the one with their funky technology who opens the time, begins the process of the time tombs opening. Then he kills the ousters for not entirely clear reasons to me right now, which precipitates the big war between the ousters and the hegemony, which is the backdrop of book two. Um, there's a battle in the skies uh, um, in, in, in book two uh, over top the time tombs. And then he's kind of a free agent. We're kind of bent on destruction, both self-destruction and others. Well, there's a reason why he opened the uh, the time tombs, and I well, this is my my opinion because the ousters they have to they have to win the war, they have to destroy the hegemony in order to control the strike the shrike. So they're fighting for control of the shrike. They're fighting for control of the shrike, you know, and that was the whole that was the the whole point of them. And they were going to debate whether to open the the time tubes, and 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 the council did not want to debate. He was like, no, that's why he killed those two, you know, and opened the time tubes himself, quickened the war, wanted the ousters to win, in my opinion, or them destroy each other. He did not care. Okay, got it. 
So his ship lives on in in books three and four. His awesome kick-ass ship. He does not, and I don't think his... He doesn't carry forward the way some of the other characters do. But his the significance kind of dies out. Yeah. I love the scene in the second book where he's playing the piano for the Ousters. Um, he's play, he actually plays my favorite piano piece. So that's where Dan Simmons won me over if he hadn't before then. Which one is it? He's playing Rachmaninoff's second piano. Yes. Piano. Yay. So the console is the last story. We don't get Hat, Hat Matsin's story uh, because he is – we don't know. He disappears during the voyage. We don't ever hear his story. Um, he comes back at the very end of the first book, right? They think they see him off in the distance. Um, and uh, the console is allowed to uh, remain with the pilgrimage, even though he reveals himself as the traitor. The various pilgrims are like, you know, we're on the pilgrimage, whatever goes, you know. <laughs> and uh, they, they're singing, we're off to see the wizard. Uh, at the very end of the story, they're going towards the time tombs. That's where the book ends, cliffhanger. Got to read the second book to know what happens at the time. Did you guys like the ending? Off to see the wizard. Yes. And yes. Yeah, that was so good. Well, in the crazy. I, I didn't get it though at first. I'm starting to get it now. Well, they were just. He was just singing a comforting song to his infant daughter. Mm-hmm. We're off to see the wizard, and of course, the wizard is this horrible beast, the Shrike, who we barely met. Uh, any casting console? Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. Solid. 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 Yeah. Solid. I, I don't have one. But not not the well-groomed, crisp Pierce Brosnan. But I like that Pierce Brosnan. The drunken, beat-up Pierce Brosnan. <gasps> ah, yes. Also <laughs> when we go Pierce back Brosnan. in time, because we're going to yeah. go back in time and tell their stories, he can be the crisp one. Yeah. All yeah. Pierce Brosnans yeah. are good Pierce Brosnans. Okay. Yeah. Right. I, I think I think that's pretty true. He's he's a pretty cool character, and I'd want his British accent. We have discussed Hyperion at great length. Do you have any final comments? Love the book. Glad you guys loved it. Um, I did. I'm glad you guys loved it. You know, I'm glad you, br- you recommended it, Jack. Yeah, mm-hmm. when you bring a uh, book to the crew, you know. Um, it, you know, you want the crew to like it. So I'm glad it went over well with, with my peeps. It did. And, it did. and to any listeners out there who have read it, I'm sure we did not do it justice. It's one of those books that um, get has like uh, a real following and a real loyalty to it. And, you know, it's almost like being a hockey fan or a soccer fan. If you know about it and you're really into it and someone tries to dabble in it, you know, you're you're like annoyed. Well, um, we hope we didn't annoy you. <laughs> That's good. That's good. And with that uh, reconciliation, we can say that this Books from Earth podcast featuring Hyperion by Dan Simmons has come to an end. We'd like to remind you to get your putrid insurance policy, though. Zombies never dismember without being remembered. You can find more information about Putrid at booksofearth.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, rate us, or visit our website, booksofearth.com. Earth makes great books. Come relive them with us. 
So long and until next time, all you shrikes. May Rachel win her hearts as much as Baby Yoda has. This is Josh, Maureen, Jack, and Lou signing off. Good night. Good night. Good night.